You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about our clients, about our practices, about the things that we do. And we are nearly 270 episodes in and (laughs) still finding areas of our field that we have yet to explore. And today we're getting the opportunity to dive in on infant mental health, early intervention, all this kind of stuff. And better than just Katie and myself wandering through this, we... (laughs) brought in an expert. So we are joined today by Dr. Barbara Stroud, an infant mental health care specialist. And thank you so much for joining us and leading this conversation for us, Dr. Stroud. My pleasure. We are so glad to have you. And it's so good to see you again, Dr. Stroud. We worked together long ago, and I've been blessed by some of your trainings in the past. So, so glad you agreed to come on today. The, the first question we ask everyone is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Well, thank you. Um, thank you for the invitation to be here. So my name is Dr. Barbara Stroud. My pronouns are she, her, and they. I'm a clinical and developmental psychologist. I am a small business owner. So currently I am professionally doing training, consultation, and a lot of reflective supervision. What I'm putting out there currently, trainings and opportunities for a transdisciplinary community, which is mental health providers, which is childcare providers, which are early intervention, uh, folks who do developmental support providers around what is really infant mental health around reflective supervision, which is a supervision strategy. We use a lot in infant and early childhood mental health, and I'm doing a lot of racial equity work and implicit bias work and trying to dismantle the systemic inequities that exist in our child-serving systems. So that's what I'm doing. I love that. So let's start with the very basics here. How do you define infants and early childhood mental health? Let's all get on the same page as far as what this actually means. Sure, sure. At its most simple level, I would say that infant and early childhood mental health is really social emotional success. The capacity to use your social emotional skills to maintain relationship engagement. And when we talk about social emotional skills, we really have to start with self-regulation, which in my world is very, very common, but some folks may not really understand what I mean by that. And it's the capacity to kind of hold a big feeling. When we're talking about little kids, we talk about big feelings. You're holding a big feeling, not becoming overwhelmed by that feeling and not losing your capacity to be in a relationship. So really what we're trying to do with little ones, because their emotional self is evolving, Their understanding of their feelings is developing in these first three years, three to five years, as well as what is culturally appropriate in their family system. And then the larger community culture, like the culture of school or preschool, in terms of how to express and share their feelings. As I think about and want to define, you know, what is social emotional success or social emotional development really look like? It starts with self-regulation, my capacity to notice my feelings and then share them with others, share them with others in a way that keeps them safe and me safe. Because I can scream and yell and punch. That's the way that I share my feelings. However, we want to be able to share our feelings in a way that's safe. (laughs) We also want others to acknowledge that our feelings are real and that we have a right to those feelings. And then we, we need people really at every level of our development to help us through the feelings that are so tough. So for little kids, infant mental health is emotional health. 
infant mental health is social emotional development. Infant mental health is ensuring that kiddos are on the right track to have authority over their own ego experience and emotional life in a way that's nurturing and safe and empowering. And if we can do that for little kids, I think we get much healthier adolescents and adults. Oh, for sure. For sure. I have so many questions, but one of the things that that you had put forward as a question that I think would be really important for us to kind of also ground ourselves in is, is the current brain science. How has that impacted the field of infant and early childhood mental health? Thank you. I think we in early childhood and infant early childhood mental health are really starting to be more of a brain-based system when we think about little kiddos. And when you understand the developing brain, you kind of can see little folks a little bit differently. And for those who aren't like brain nuts and love to read neuroscience like I do, (laughs) we'll just do a, a quick review. You know, our cortex is where all that narrative declarative learning happens. And psychotherapy, traditionally, our roots are very cortex heavy. They're very, let's explain, let's tell the story, let's do, you know, talk therapy. That's all cortex level activity. And Little ones, really, kids under three are very, very midbrain or limbic system based. They're all about the experience. They're all about feeling their feelings. They don't often have words for their feelings, but they're swimming in their feelings and their feelings can be very, very overwhelming. And then our survival brain or our brain stem is where we go, that reactive part of our brain when we, our brain really thinks it's fighting for our lives. So most kids under, I'm going to say under three, you're going to get small glimpses of cortex and you're going to get a lot of midbrain. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of survival skills because the first role of the, of the newborn is to survive. And surviving for a new, newborn means I gain the connection to a strong adult figure who will care for me. Inf- infants do not survive alone. So they must attach. They must make you fall madly in love with them. <laughs> and then they, and they do this with the cue, the coos and the, and the smiles. And they just, they do this and their amazing smell and all that kind of stuff that it just makes you want to you know, grab those babies and say, I love you madly because they need to be loved madly. And we notice and understand that cortex level interventions or strategies are really not birth to five appropriate or even successful. We really have to start thinking more about what's happening in their midbrain and how we help them survive and move through these really big feelings with nurturing supportive adults. So what I often say to parents and providers is it's our job to be the bigger cortex for the dysregulated midbrain. So your little kid is not bad. They're not misbehaving. Their dysregulated midbrain is doing the best it can. And we have to step in and be the cortex that holds that dysregulation, nurtures them through this process. And literally that is how their own brain is going to develop, which for me is like, oh, well, your behavior is impacting your child's developing brain. And that's like awesome. So what are the basics that therapists should know in going into this kind of work. I'm a marriage and family therapist, come very much from a family systems. I'm hearing that this is a lot of parent work of how to reflect this back to their own kids because we might get 45 minutes with their kids. They get hundred and some other odd hours with their kids. So they are having a lot more impact, but what are the basics that therapists should know in working with this age group? That's a great question. And I think one of the first things folks should stop doing if they're working with children under five is trying to work with a child alone. Mm, yeah, That's going to be your first mistake. Because as you said, they're going to spend 45 minutes with you and the rest of their days with their caregivers. You want to do what we refer to as dyadic therapy. So we want to work with the caregiver and the child, because I believe intervention happens outside of my therapy time. 
my therapy time is to structure the relationship skills that the parent then will use for the next week to really mold this developing child. So I would say, one, work with the parent. Two, learn about social emotional development, because really your therapeutic process is going to model the developmental stages of social emotional support or social emotional development. And there is a stage, there are a set of stages, Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weider put down these social emotional milestones. They're available through the Perfectum website, or you can just Google Stanley Greenspan social emotional milestones, just like any other set of milestones. We move through these and you can begin, you can learn how to identify where a child is in their social emotional development and to build interventions around where they are in their social emotional development. You can help parents support kids exactly where they are. Because when we understand that social emotional success is interpersonal success, we want to support that, right? Just like motor development or cognitive development, all the other developmental skills that kids go through, right? They go through social emotional development. So you want to meet them there, first of all and foremost. Teaching parents to be good enough reflectors of their children's experience. A lot of parents have been raised in the culture that suggests that punishment is a good teaching tool. We actually know in infant mental health that punishment is not a teaching tool. Punishment shuts down your child's nervous system and teaches them not to engage or that it's not safe to be their authentic self. So really what we want to help parents understand is how do you sit with and hold these really big feelings that sometimes scare us and they are the authentic experience of the child. I'm not sure if that's been really helpful, but let me give you something that I give parents and I give childcare providers and I give therapists as a way of thinking about one simple thing you can do and always remember that will support your child's social emotional health. Keep them safe, make them feel seen, heard, and helped. Safe, seen, heard, and helped. You do those four things and you start with safe because we all want to be safe in relationships. We all want to be safe in the world. Sometimes what we would call misbehavior or acting out behavior is because my brain and body don't feel safe. You don't have to know why they don't feel safe. They simply don't. C, identify my authentic self. And those that, you know, as therapists, we can see how this supports identity and ego development, that I have authority yeah. to be my authentic self. See your child, name your child's experience. And that noise was really scary. I, yeah, I can see you're flinching. I can see your arms are flailing. That noise was really scary. I'm here. I'm here. And I'm going to keep you safe right? Hear their story. Hear their truth. When your children are verbal, that noise was really scary. I didn't like that song. I didn't like it. And that's okay. And let them not like that. It's okay that they're scared. Yeah. I'm angry. I didn't get a cookie. I want a cookie. It's not fair. How come I don't get a cookie? It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's okay to not like it. It's okay to have these big feelings. We hold the value that aren't good or bad feelings. And sometimes the feelings are really big and feel overwhelming. The most important thing is that we're safe in our feelings. And then help is not fixing for, help is offering co-regulation. Co-regulation is where that bigger cortex comes in. Co-regulation, bigger cortex comes in and it says, I gotcha. I'm going to hold you emotionally through this challenge. So for folks who work with infants, or if you've had your own infant, there's a time when all your infant wants is to be next to you, right? They want to sit on dad's chest, mom's chest, grandma's chest, whoever, and they just want to feel the connection of a caregiver. What you want to do with co-regulation is you want to cuddle or swaddle the brain, the emotional need of the child. You don't physically do it, but you kind of hold their emotional experience and say, I'm going to swaddle and hold that big feeling with you so that you know you're safe in it. 
Okay. And through safe, seen, heard, and helped. And through this, we really want to create the strategy and the experience and the skill set, even at a pre-conscious level, below the level of awareness that I will survive relationship rupture. How many of your audience who are doing work with adults are handling folks that are still struggling with relationship rupture? Oh, that's what I was thinking about completely. I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I've got so many of my clients who did not get this at all. They have such a hard time in interpersonal relationships. And I think about what a blessing this would have been for them to have that safety, to be safe, seen, heard, and helped. Oh, I love that. That's, That's really, really helpful. Well, that's my mantra that I share with folks. If we're going to help nurture these kids, these young ones, you know, from birth to five to one, love themselves, (laughs) have a healthy ego, understand they share this planet with other people (laughs) and that all of us on this planet deserve to be respected, right? We have to respect them and we have to respect their emotions. I'm imagining the therapists who are going to very ideally bring this to their clients' parents and hearing from parents, but I never got that when I was their age. I don't know how to do that, or I won't do that because look at me, I turned out fine. I know that that turns this into parent work and (laughs) (laughs) all right, we're going to move some of this family system stuff to stopping intergenerational trauma. Please help me expand on just kind of this shifting from infant child care to this is a lot of ongoing work. Oh, it is. And I think, you know, you, you nailed it when you said transgenerational work. One of the buzzwords in infant mental health or infant early childhood mental health is parallel process. And I think of that as paying it forward. This idea that you do unto others as you would have others do unto others, which is an icon, Jerry Paul, an icon in the infant early childhood mental health field. I have to say that is her quote, that we are really treating the parent in the way that we want the parent to treat the child. Because we understand that's that's the message of dyadic work is we're holding the parent so the parent can have the emotional capacity to hold the child. We understand that most of us <laughs> have had parents who did their best and may not have met our needs. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. They did their best, but they may not have met all of our needs. There is so much more that we're continuing to learn about development, about the brain, about social structures that are abusive and harmful institutional inequities and systemic challenges that families are dealing with. So today you can rewire a relationship. You can rewire a relationship, including your own, and you can heal yourself by parenting your child differently. So for parents, you know, who kind of want to say, I wasn't parented that way and I turned out just fine. You are, I would honor the safe, seen, heard, and help. You are a phenomenal parent. I I would never question your parenting. And I'm curious if you're willing to try some different things that we know that brain science tells us will support your child's capacity to be successful in school. Are you willing to do that? I think it would be pretty hard for a parent to say no to that. There we go. Because, <laughs> because social, there you go. Because social emotional skills are school readiness skills. And that's what I remind folks. And we have, if you, if for those of you who are working with adolescents, You're aware of the fact that our educational system is starting to teach social emotional learning because we have a generation of children who don't have robust social emotional skills, and they're now trying to teach it in high school. We can teach this seamlessly in the first five years of life, and this prepares children to sit in the classroom and learn. So beyond, you know, teaching kids zero to five, beyond play therapy, what do we do? Yeah, so I, I would say in terms of play therapy, be very cautious because I, I think play therapy is very, it's very complex. It's very advanced and you need training. 
please get really good training and get supervision. Don't, <laughs> don't just sure. get a bunch of toys in yeah, your office. Don't get and- toys in a sandbox and call yourself a place therapist. Please do not. <laughs> please do not. This, <laughs> like doing couples counseling. You know, you don't read a book and say I'm a couples counselor. You, you get training and supervision sure. to develop expertise. So folks think, you know, play is the window. And I love the idea of play therapy. I love the, the history behind it taking Freud's idea of narrative declarative and then Anna Freud kind of thinking about the children tell us their narration in play and they do when they have symbolic thought or symbolic capacity. And this is where development is so important and particularly social emotional development. There are a series of developmental skills that must happen before children are capable of symbolic thought. And when we have children who've had trauma in their life or other emotionally disruptive chronic kind of experiences and often the children that we find in psychotherapy, their development will be delayed in terms of access to symbolic thought and play therapy will not be very successful. So the question is, well, if I can't play with kids, what can I do? All right. So that was Kurt's initial question. The first thing, well, here's what, here's what we do below the level of symbolic thought is we do engagement and mirroring of the experience of the other. We do somatosensory kind of body-based interventions with kids And if you think about the first thing you do when you pick up an infant, whether they're yours or someone else's, is you look in their eyes and you copy their face. And if they open their mouth, you open your mouth. And if you raise your eyebrows, they raise their eyebrows. Think of how that demonstrates, I see you and I acknowledge you. So before the level of words, before the level of the capacity to symbolize, I see you, I acknowledge you. Seeing the experience of a child is a wonderful intervention before they're capable of symbolic play. That's just one nugget I can share with you. Again, I would encourage people to look into, I'm going to promote Perfectum because I respect the work that they're doing and they teach DIR floor time. There are other universities and systems that teach DIR floor time, but I don't know them off the top of my head, so I'm sorry. But I would look into some of the pre-symbolic interventions that are available if you want to do this work, if you really want to do this work well. It seems like there's a lot that can happen within the therapy session, but there's also, it's the way you described it is that it's really setting folks up to go back and practice them. Mm-hmm. The thing that popped into my head, and, and I think part of it was how you started bringing this up, but I, I think about all of these kiddos who potentially were just getting ready to start school or, or all of those things and the world shut down. Yeah. And I I think about all of the social interaction that maybe was lost in some of these critical periods. What are you seeing as far as the developmental stages, I guess, or the social emotional development based on kind of lockdown for two years for the pandemic? You know, it's interesting. We are seeing some social emotional delays in kiddos. And there is some research happening at Columbia University right now. And they're looking specifically at mother baby dyads and how parents have negotiated the pandemic and the outcomes in terms of social emotional development for kiddos. So we are seeing some delays in social emotional development. However, we know that relationships can make up that difference. We know, we know how to repair that. We know that with good resource and good support, those delays, the kids can recoup that. One of the outcomes of some of this information is that it was what seemed to be the barrier for children's success was the lack of availability of parents. Parents' own stress froze their natural caregiving capacity. And this is not to blame parents at all, but our, <laughs> our own overwhelmed stress response as adults had us made us less available to our children. 
And so as parents were able to feel safer in the world, they were able to give more to their children and support their children's experience. Now, of course, not being in preschool and not being around age mates also impacted social emotional development. And I think anyone who is working with kiddos who are three, remember during this pandemic period, remember they're currently not three, they're probably developmentally two. So you have to treat them like they're developmentally two. I have just some professional and personal concerns about kids heading for academic training after the pandemic, because I'm concerned that they have not had the robust social emotional support they needed to jump into the challenge of academic training. So as parents, you make decisions about where you want your kid to be in school. I mean, if if kids, you can take kindergarten twice, no one's going to be particularly upset with you. It's not going to keep you from graduating and won't be on your final transcript. So (laughs) parents can think about those things themselves, but we have a population of kiddos that didn't get the robust social interaction that other kiddos get. And so that's going to, for a temporary period, we can always recruit, right? Repair is always possible. That's the good news. They are going to look developmentally a little younger than they physically are. And that's also what we know of kids who've had trauma. We know that. We know, right? We know adults that have had trauma. We know those of you working with adolescents, because I did start my work with adolescents. (laughs) Those those 16-year-olds can look very much like they're 10 if they've, they've had a trauma history and or when they're emotionally overwhelmed, right? And so this is what we're seeing with our kiddos. Our four-year-olds might really be too. And when stress, when you introduce stress into their world, stress for a four-year-old might be, I don't want to wear these socks. I want to wear my green socks. That might be stress for a four-year-old. They're going to have a meltdown or what some of us might call a tantrum and they're going to look too. That's a typical response to stress. That is not a bad child. That is not them misbehaving. That is not them trying to manipulate you. That is a child who's having an appropriate response to stress. So you respond to the stress. You are stressed. There's a lot going on today. The socks were just the tip of the iceberg. I'm here. Some days are hard and socks can be a problem. (laughs) Socks can be a problem. Those darn socks. <laughs> As you're talking, I, I, I know that there's a lot of trauma that can happen, especially in communities where there's there's even more disparities. And I'm, I'm just curious, because I know this is one of the areas of expertise for you as well. Like, how can providers support family culture as well as address these disparities within our systems? The first problem is pretending that there's any culturally neutral or cultural free anything, experience, strategy, what have you. We are all sure. swimming in culture. We're all swimming in culture. Absolutely. And so an important responsibility of a clinician is to say to families, I'm interested in your caregiving practices from a cultural lens. If you have immigrated recently to this country or if your parents are from another country, what would have happened in that country with a two-week-old, with a six-week-old, with a six-month-old? Sure. Because that's going to, or a 12-year-old or what have you, because that's going to inform what I know about your family system. So the first thing is to start asking questions. And I'll tell your audience, because these are a couple of things that I tell folks to ask as just culturally curious questions to get to know folks. If you're working with babies, ask what's a family tradition that you have to do in the first six weeks, two months of the baby's life. Most family cultures have some sort of activity and it can be a religious activity or it can be a very specific family activity that, you know, Grandma Sally has to come and kiss the baby and she does that for all the baby. I mean, I I don't know. You Mm -hmm. have some sort of family practice. The other thing I ask folks is, do you know your family's immigration story? And can you, and would you be willing to share that with me? And then another question is, do you know your birth story? 
And can you tell me your birth story? It's interesting. Sometimes people don't know their birth story. So that oh, just tells me something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one thing, if, if your parents did get married, because not everybody's parents did, do you know the story of how they met and fell in love? So these are stories that tell me a little bit about their family story, because culture is held in stories and practices. It opens the door to the idea that your story is important to me. So I'm going to give some prompts that say the story of who you are and how you came to be in this world is important to me. That's part of your journey. So I want to know about that. And then I'm going to be particularly sensitive to areas of inequity. And I invite clinicians, particularly if you are white, what we call dominant culture, Eurocentric, you guys can't see me. I'm an African-American cisgender female. That's how I identify. And I would encourage all of us to say, you know, if I'm a white person, as a white person, I may not understand the journey of someone who is Latino, African-American, cisgender, heterosexual. I'm going to need some support with the queer community, transgender community, LGBTQ. I'm not going to understand. So understanding our power as professionals, we have power in the relationship. So because of our power, I think we have to say these issues are important because folks don't know what therapy is. They come in and they follow our lead. What, sure. what do we have to talk about? I'm going to have to talk about my childhood. I'm going to have to talk. What do I have to talk about? Well, we have to talk about all these things and we have to talk about culture and we have to talk about where you may be feeling disenfranchised, even in this relationship, because I want you to be safe to say to me, that's not my story. You're misinterpreting it. And some of it might be because of your bias lens, because you don't know what it's like to have a child with autism, or you're not a person who is Muslim, or you aren't, you don't have a child who's transitioning to another gender. You're right. And I want to understand. I have to imagine that there's also a lot of just kind of wealth inequality questions that come up in this kind of work too, whether it's access to even things like preschool and that kind of stuff that impact a lot of these kinds of questions. From your perspective, what kinds of work do you end up accommodating for when these kinds of disparities show up? Well, it's, it's being poor in this country is pretty devastating and children who in poverty have poor outcomes across the board and there's inequity in turn. There's so much inequity. I mean, there's inequity in terms of hiring practices and pay structure. You know, I'm a black woman, black women make 58 cents for every dollar that a white male makes. So there's, you know, there's all these other structures of inequity that also keep poverty nested in certain groups. So, you know, we, we have to think about that as well. The other thing too, is I think there are some, I don't want to get down too much of a, like a social political <laughs> lens necessarily, but there's some challenges for families. It's hard to get out of poverty. You know, it can become a trap. Your attempts to exit that can result in, for example, you losing your WIC coupons or your childcare stipend and so forth and so on. So as you try to climb out of poverty, minimum wage won't cover the resources that you've lost because you were on some sort of subsidy. So it's a bit of a trap and it becomes very, very difficult for families. So I I think, again, it's admitting that it's real and helping families find their best method to move through that system, exit that system with our support. I think the big piece of this is and, and this was stuff that I think I learned from you and, and other colleagues at the clinic, is that there are assumptions that folks who have not lived in poverty or who have not engaged in poverty communities and communities that are, are overcome by poverty, that they make assumptions of the amount of time that can be spent or the types of resources that families have available. And I think what mm. you're talking about is is that there's just a reality there, and that's part of navigating this. I mean, to me, it seems like 
it's hard to feel hopeful and kind of do that parallel process of holding the space for this really huge systemic issue while then these right. caregivers who potentially don't have much, they they have the 45-minute the session and maybe another hour, one other day this week that they're not working their two jobs to really be present for their child. How as clinicians can we help families navigate this? How do we hold hope for ourselves that yeah. can then hold hope for our clients? I hear you. And it, it's, it's very, it can be overwhelming that that's the parallel process moving up towards us. We're sure. holding that tension and hopelessness that our families are holding. And I get it. And yes, we have families working two jobs and single parents working two jobs yeah. and taking the bus to get to our, our work, thinking about it, to get to our office and being on it like an hour bus ride both ways, you know, the commitment to getting their sure. children service, right? And many times they'll look at us as providers and say, you do it because you have the doctorate or the, the marriage and family therapist mm-hmm. degree or, or, you know, you're the professional, you do it. You're smarter than me. You fix my child. And so when we sort of say, you have the authority to do it, that can, what me, what, me do one more thing. So what I try to do with families in that situation is make one change in their system. You know, I know there's a lot going on in your day and I, I want you to think about one thing you can do. Can you, and I usually think about a meal together or bedtime, can you all sit down and have dinner together? And some families can and some can't because one of the parents might be working till nine. And so I want you to spend that time to talk to each other, share your day. You know, people talk about their roses and the thorns. Just have a conversation with your children during that moment. And if they can't do a meal together, have a bedtime routine, not a bedtime time, because I know many of my families who were struggling with, who are overburdened, we refer to them as overburdened. There's just too much happening. There's not enough resource because they can't always have a bedtime, but you can have a ritual. What are the things you do before bed? And it doesn't have to be a story because I've had had parents who can't read. It can be mm-hmm. a tickle game. It can be a song that you love to sing. But the point is there's some predictability and consistency. That's an anchor. Predictability is an anchor for families for whom there's a lot of chaos. I know that when I get home, my family will have dinner together, regardless of all the other things that have been happening in my life. I know that before I go to bed, I will get five minutes with my dad, my mom, my mom, my mom to sit and say prayers together, if that's important to you. Find one ritual that you can support every day with your child. That's the first thing. And these interventions don't have to be something that you stop and sit down in special time and play for three hours for 30 minutes with your kid. I know there are interventions that talk about special time and I, I support that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. When you have six children and you're working two jobs, it is very hard to find 30 minutes of special time. So, you know, we just have to be realistic. Yeah. On that. Yeah. However, you can put on shoes and make that a nurturing activity. You can sort of say, oh my God, look at your toes. One, two, three, four, boop, and on goes your shoes. So take everyday moments, things that you have to do, hair combing. Oh my goodness, hair combing. All you guys out there, Google Marva Lewis, Dr. Marva Lewis. She's done some wonderful research around hair combing as a nurturing activity to support attachment. Better yet, I have a video on my YouTube channel about Marva. But hair combing, this is something you already do with your children. This is a moment you can facilitate attachment with your children. So we can take everyday tasks and turn them into not just nurturing moments, but therapeutic moments. Oh, I love we need it. to say that again. <laughs> take a nurturing task that parents have to do already. It's already something they're going to do and turn it into a therapeutic moment. I love that. And sitting here reflecting back on some of the moments that I had with my own kids when they were in that zero to five age and also some of the moments that were missed and just kind of like, oh, these were things that my now middle-aged children do reflect back on as far as like, oh yeah, I remember doing this with mom or I remember doing this with dad that still 
does bring a lot of this to life. I have the benefit of having my own kids. And I know for a lot of clinicians who don't, that this ends up becoming a barrier to working, especially with very young kids that, you know, I would look at providers for my own kids. Like, what do you know about being a parent? Like, <laughs> you know, about, you know, sleepless nights and all of this kind of stuff. For some of our, especially early career clinicians who might not have their own kids, do you have special advice for them? I certainly do. Here we go. I'm going to help you. You know, you're right. I have not had the gift or the opportunity, whatever you want to say, to have my own children. And I do know that every child is different and every parenting journey is unique. Your story is your story. I'm here to understand. I'm here to offer compassion. I'm here to help. But no, I will never know your story, even if I was a parent. And to me, that's true because, Kurt, if you have more than one child, you did not parent them all this. I only have one child. If you had more, you did not parent them all the same (laughs) (laughs) because, because there's a relational interaction and that is unique to that child. I believe your spouse, your co-parent parented differently than you did. So parenting is a, it's a very individual journey, just like psychotherapy is an individual journey. So we're going to co-create the parenting story that works for you and your child at this developmental moment. And, and remember that story is evolving. What else do we need to talk about that we've missed so far? Because I I think there's so many questions I could probably add, but I know that there's, we're running low on time and I'd love to make sure we've hit all the main points. You know, I think the last thing I want to say, I think we've hit the main points. The last thing I want to say to your clinicians, and it's going to sound a little bit cheesy, but I think it ultimately is true. Love your kids. Love your kids in the mess. Love your kids in the stress. Take care of your stress response so that you can be emotionally available for your kids. You will not go wrong if at the end of the day, your kids know that they were madly loved by you. Where can people find out more about you and your work? DrBarbaraStroud.com, DrBarbaraStroud, S-T-R-O-U-D website. You can go there. You can stalk me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm on all of those. I also have a YouTube channel, which is Dr. Barbara Strath. There's a lot of great free videos on there for you to take a look at. Please go and watch all of those things. So I'm pretty easy to find. And we will include links to all of those in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. Follow us on our social media. Come and continue the conversation in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And if you like the content and want to support the show, please become a Patreon patron or support us through Buy Me a Coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Barbara Stroud. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 